0: I'm Visha's wife, and remember, when you name a dog Janet or Timothy, you are dragging humanity down just a little bit.
1: Nathan Lohr is a songwriter, singer, and multi-instrumentalist based in Guelph, Ontario. A well-respected drummer who has played with Jim Guthrie, Royal City, Feist, and Fembots, among many other outfits, Lore has been making music of his own prolifically over the past 20 years, both under his own name and in his Afrobeat-inspired project, Minotaurs. While the latter has occupied most of his time and energy over the past decade, Lore has also spent the past couple of years crafting a new rock-oriented solo album. It's called Apocalypse Marshmallow, It's out July 9th, 2021, on his own Maxilicious Records, and it prompted Nathan and I to have a good talk about his new album and where these songs and ideas came from, our thoughts on parenting and how our kids' emotional behavior relates to our own, politicization, history, and media literacy, being intense people, playing the drums, future plans, and much more. A part of the Entertainment One Network with the support of listeners like you who follow and subscribe to this podcast and spread the word about it and make flexible monthly donations at patreon.com slash Control, plus in-kind support from Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton. This is the 622nd episode of Creative Control featuring the lovely and talented Nathan Lore, with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Hi Nathan, how's it going? Pretty good. Vish, how are you? I'm well. It's nice to see you. Me too. On this virtual uh, interface, uh, where in the world are you today? Uh, I'm at my
2: studio in
1: Guelph, Ontario, Canada. Nice. How are things in Guelph, Ontario, Canada? I miss aspects of it, but also <laughs> there's not much to miss these days. I, I gather. Uh, how are things going? Oh, there's plenty to miss,
2: but things are things are okay. You know, we're. Uh just trying to navigate the waters i I was just talking with my wife this morning saying that you know we're opening up quote unquote and we're able to see people more now but we're still in a pandemic like there's still lots that we're that we don't get to do especially with the kids and stuff you know the it's not like we're out of the woods there's still plenty to worry about and i you know we're just still navigating that and i think it's important to remind ourselves that too right
1: well, it's harder to do that in Canada when you see parts of the rest of the world opening up, isn't it? I mean, for me, I watch as we're speaking, I've been watching two maybe three basketball games, uh, NBA basketball games, playoff games, yeah. Yeah. a night and you see the crowds and it's just like what the hell <laughs> we are so far away from that. Even True. the hockey game, the hockey games that I watch on occasion, well, some are attended and some aren't. It's confusing. I know you're you're really uh Interested in polarization <laughs> on some <laughs> level, and it seems striking to me that even in our attempt to enjoy uh, recreational activities, yep. there's no collective understanding of how to engage with them right now. Like, like <laughs> yeah. it's so bizarre. Each province, each each province in Canada, each state in the United States, says it. Like, you'll watch a for me, I'll watch an NBA playoff game, and one night when it's at a once it's if it's in Texas. Full arena, nineteen thousand people, but if it's in like L.A. or New York, more of the progressive states, five thousand people. Like they've, they've they're letting people in, but so that's mm-hmm. does that resonate with you? Just the notion that no one is on the same page. Oh, anything?
2: absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And actually, I would go even further, right? Like, so yeah, you you see an arena full of people, but what what the, the story that seems to have kind of disappeared is that. The hospitalization and and mortality rates for unvaccinated people is still raging, right? And not just in the United States or anywhere else. It's you know the there's countries where there's hardly anyone vaccinated in the third world or developing world or whatever you want to call it. And those you know we don't hear about that anymore. And there's sort of this like focus on you know, for good reason. It's not to diminish the kind of struggles or or hardship that we've faced in in developing nations, but, you know, let's, let's be real about where we're at. Like we're far from out of the woods here. And while there is hope on the horizon and it's important to recognize that just for your own mental health and having something to look forward to, it's still, it's not like we're out of the woods here, you know? And it's, it it really bothers me to kind of, especially in the States where that, that the hardship of people who are still dealing with COVID in a very real way, it's just kind of brushed to the side. Mm-hmm. And that that's really hard for me to witness, you know.
1: Well, I know you made this, this record in this time of... Well, actually, I don't know this. I wanted to get to that. I don't know when you made this record exactly in terms of what we've all been going through. So I want to ask you that question. But first of all, i frame framed this for people in my introduction of this episode. But your album is called Apocalypse Marshmallow. Mm-hmm. what the hell were you thinking? <laughs> that's my lead question there. That's Is a, that your question? That's my okay. question. I was trying to paraphrase a very famous incident between the villainous Jay Leno and, at the time, the disgraced Hugh Grant. And that was his first right. question. In a, in this case, <laughs> you, you named your album Apocalypse Marshmallow, so I thought it would be funny, potentially. I thought it would make you laugh, anyway, if I started off. I'm laughing. You are. I'm it's it's worked. Laughing. So, no, it's a, it's an evocative title, and it's... I mean, you and I are both uh, dads. Our kids uh, have come up together. Uh, and so I kind of know that sometimes your kids say sort of offhand things and sometimes you're like, yeah, that's funny. And then you let it... And maybe, you know, in our case, in our generation, you'd be like, I'm going to share this on social media. My kids said the funniest thing. So yeah. I will say, and I don't know that this is the story, but when I heard... When I saw, rather, that you're, you were calling your album Apocalypse Marshmallow, I thought, oh, did one of the kids maybe come up with this image and you just thought it was cute and funny or is this something that you came up with? Well neither
2: actually and this is the sort of marvel and mystery of songwriting and a lot of my lyrics kind of come from a place that I'm not entirely sure where and in this case you know generally I just fill my notebooks with ideas and musings and writings and a lot of it just kind of comes out and then I Going kind to of shape it after the fact. But in this case, that song came out of what was a really disastrous camping trip with my kids and I. My wife was working, and I thought it would be fun to take the kids camping at Guelph Lake. And anything that could have gone wrong went wrong. And later that night, I was doing some writing, and the, this idea just came and just the words just kind of came out. And then as I was sort of shaping it after the fact, I realized, like, yeah, this is a really interesting idea. This idea that You know, the apocalypse is sort of like a wasteland of... uh, And that came from the idea... We went camping at Guelph Lake in like mid to late August. And I don't know if you've ever been to Guelph Lake in the deepest parts of the summer, but it's not necessarily pretty. Um, The E. There's lots of
1: goose shit as I recall yeah
2: Yeah, and I and I kind of had forgotten that it had been a while since I'd been there so we went to the beach I was really counting on beach time to really fill up a lot of the time when we got there it was just like so disgusting so we couldn't really do that I wound up taking them we just drove into town and went to the outdoor pool instead and then we went back and and just all mayhem Um, it ended with do you ever go to the Rockwood Lake thing um, we have done no I don't know actually if we've done that
1: that one's nicer. No yeah, offense, bit, Guelph Lake. Yeah, it's not as big, but they also have the E. coli warnings. We can talk yeah. about this offline. But I, <laughs> uh, I just for my listeners, and I don't mean to promote Rockwood over Guelph, but the Rockwood Conservation Area, if you're ever in that part of Ontario, is is actually quite nice. It's
2: pretty beautiful. Yeah.
1: So anyway, the it just
2: felt like an apocalypse that day, and but I'm with my kids, and they're and they're cute, and they're fun, and and uh, ideally. Know, they, yeah, for the most part. Um, and they love marshmallows, of course. And uh, anyway, the, the the idea of putting those two words together was just really intriguing to me.
1: Well, and then if for those who haven't heard the song yet, as I recall, it leads off the record. And uh, it does sound like a descent into a kind of madness. Um, and, uh, you know, I know you... Rather well, and I know you struggle with certain things in terms of. I know you triumph in certain things in terms of parenting, but and, and living, and living in the world, as a mm-hmm. not only as a parent but as a. It's interesting, right? As parents, you're when you become a parent, your whole worldview changes. Obviously, I think, or is that too radical a statement? Would you say that's true?
2: I'm not. I'm not sure. Worldview changes, but I've always like I use the analogy that you know in Empire Strikes Back where Luke is on uh, Dagobah, and he's training with Yoda. And there's that sequence where he has to go down into the tunnel, and he's he's got to just go see what's down there. Yoda, Yoda's just like, just go down there. You don't know what you're going to find. And he's and he's looking through the caverns, and he sees Darth Vader. And he has this little battle with Darth Vader, and he defeats Darth Vader, but then he, like, chops off his mask or something, and S- the smoke sp- clears.
1: Spoiler alert! <laughs>
2: <laughs> the smoke clears, and it's and it's Luke. He's, right. he's looking at himself. he's He's doing battle with himself right And to me that's kind of like parenthood. you know it, it just really it gets so raw and so real at times that you're really just faced with your own self. And when you're struggling as a parent, oftentimes what you're really struggling with is yourself.
1: Well, because to 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 add to your analogy, like your children end up being these complete reflections of you and your partner. And, and, and because they pick up all your beyond, you know, if, if they're your, you know, whatever. Genetically, if they're your children, they're going to have a lot of your physical attributes mm-hmm. and emotional and psychological attributes, I'm sure, uh, as well. And that's what's come up. But and I always say this to people because I've learned this about anger. What I've learned from being a parent is I, I've learned how anger works and, uh-huh. and how often when I'm if, if my children are... or Well, I'll, I'll just put this on me for now. If I'm upset with my children, it's because they reflect uh, behavioral patterns of my own and I have to reconcile... If, if you're self-aware at least a little bit, you'll realize, oh, that's what I'm like. Like, yeah. I do what I'm mad at them for doing. Absolutely. So now yes. I'm mad at myself. Yes. And I want... Because... And I was having this text conversation with someone about this recently because they were fretting about their mother-in-law or their parents-in-law judging them. And I was arguing that well, grandparenting is the ultimate bizarre time warp because as you get older and you become more reflective upon your life and you look at your children, you might be happy and proud of them, but there's just that degree of disappointment that you didn't do something correct, so to speak, you know? And and so yeah, these yeah. adults now are walking around and If you're lucky, you don't just see them as the manifestation of your mistakes. You see them as something to be, you know, someone to be proud of. But some people don't do that. It's equal measure. Mm -hmm. Then you've got the grandkids, and so you get these helicopter grandparents who are like, I. They're not saying this, but subconsciously they're like, I made a mistake with my children. I don't want my children to make the same mistake with their, you know, my grandchildren. (laughs) So you get this bizarre like judgment tone thing where my mom will be like you know, you, you should not be uh, yelling at your son. I'm like, you right. smacked me with sandals. You once <laughs> threw my U2 tape out of a moving car. Like, you did the most <laughs> weird shit. You broke my Walkman in half in front of me, and I had nothing to do with uh, the discussion. Like, you know, we had some issues. So, like, the hypocrisy comes to the fore as well. So that's what. Right, so what right, I'm right. saying is, for me to be, or for you to be upset with your child... About some behavioral trait and not see it in yourself, you, there's a there's a hypocritical loop that you have to eventually. I think for me, it doesn't stop you from doing it, but I don't know about you. No. But for me, I'm like, oh, if I reflect on it like an hour later, I'm like, ah, oh, that's what I'm like. That's I'm the one who's always late for things. I'm the one who gets- what
2: which which means which means, and this is comes to the crux of it in how you kind of break the cycle that you're talking about. This sort of intergenerational expectations and inter- intergenerational guilt or sense of failure or whatever. Like you have to do the work as the parent to try to correct it in yourself. And it's really not the kid's fault at all. And, you know, I know I've struggled with that, you know, like my situation as a stay at home dad with a wife who works a lot, you know, I'm with my kids like so yeah. much, and um, you know I'd be lying if I said it wasn't really tough at times like really tough like right you know (laughs) sanding me right down to the grain kind of tough you know and you know I don't know I've had some successes as a parent but I have tons of failures too but I think the only way forward in that case is you know self-kindness self-compassion kind of being honest about where you're at understanding that it's it's not, you know, like one therapist I had was families are resilient. Yes. You know, it's not it's not too late. It's never yeah. too late. All is not lost. There's always a chance to to make well, it better.
1: But make, I will uh, say also I think heal. you do it and I do it and my certainly my wife your wife probably does it too. We put a lot of pressure on ourselves.
2: Yes. And I often
1: when my wife is lamenting about some behavioral trait about our children uh, I will often default to well what did you expect this was going to be like? Mm-hmm. I feel like some people have a we'll have children it'll be great and you know uh, it, oh, it, totally. it is it is absolutely oh great but I don't think you actually add to the calc you don't add the tremendous amount of work that it's going to be for the rest of your lives like hundred yeah, We oh most we talk to our parents all the time we're lucky they're they're around and we can talk to them. They're our parents. Mm-hmm. We are going to be these kids parents for the whole time we're alive. They're yeah. always going to need our advice and our help. If all goes well, you know, mm-hmm. as long as you can maintain good strong relationships uh and don't <laughs> lead them astray. Yeah. Um, you know, but that's that is pressure. That is uh yes. and in, it's an unarticulated pressure we face uh, about the responsibility aspect of it, not just like I think you have uh, families, you have children rather um I mean, we can get into it, but I'm sure it's it's an expression of your love for your partner and the, the thing you want to build together, the life you want to build together. But life is hard yep. the whole time, and there's really no aspect of life that isn't difficult. You can be happy, but it's gonna everything is like work. And so the children, having children, I think, ultimate manifestation of that. So you can't go in with rose-colored glasses thinking it's just going to be... Well, that's the crux of it right there, yeah. is that
2: you have to right away get used to this is the way it is now this whole idea that oh it gets better man when people told me that as a younger parent i was like i don't i don't think that's true no it's, i'm not gonna i'm not gonna no. buy into that because i'm i i think that that's like trading the now for the later and i'm not into that uh, it doesn't get better this is it and it's it might change and it might take different shapes.
1: What do you think people? What do you think people mean by it gets better? Because I I have a friend. Well, I think
2: they mean like the the intensity of the you know the baby years or the toddler what? years. Like
1: so to me, here's my thing: as someone who suffers from some measure of anxiety and control issues, my children are at an age still where I pretty much know exactly. Well, now they're going out actually every day. They're going out for recess to the park with their friends by themselves. But that's recent, you know. Yeah. I am at an age, they're at an age rather, where I know where they are at all mm. times, pretty mm-hmm. much. I know what they're kind of doing for the most part. We have some unpleasant surprises every once in a while, particularly in the age of the internet. I'll leave it at that. We're like, what are you watching? <laughs> How did this, what language are you using all of a sudden? But yeah, there's that, but that's fine. I mean, whatever. I'm a free speech person and I'm I can deal with all that stuff. But my thing is like, because my friend is like I can't wait for this like you're saying this part to be over I'm like mm. but then they become teenagers yeah. uh, then there's all sorts of temptations in life that you have to be like worried about they wreck oh, yeah. they, it, they it, wreck it your car ends. they wreck your stuff how does it get better when does it get better I think is and, and just to take it out of parenting
2: for a second it, it applies to everything else too yes like we have this sense in our you know western society that There's like this linear progression that lives take, that you do this, then you do that, then you do this and do that. And then eventually you get to the end and you succeed and you're at the top of the heap or whatever. And that's that's just an illusion, right? Like that's, it's a lie. And I would argue that that's kind of the root of a lot of our sort of social ills, that we have this sense that, you know, because, for example, if you buy into that illusion and it doesn't come true, you're bitter or you feel like you failed. Yeah. Right. And that's that a lot of like anger and frustration that we see in our society can be traced back to that, I would argue.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, that's part of my if I have anger issues, it's that for sure. I don't feel like I I feel like I'm working as hard as I can at stuff the same way you are with music. But I often feel like I'm not progressing. Like, I don't know what the measure of progression is anymore, but I I don't often feel like I've I feel like I'm getting better. What I do, I don't know, like, your new album is wonderful and I know is born of the experience of playing on your own and with many different eclectic-sounding bands. And so mm-hmm. this, to me, seems like a really great manifestation of all of that skill of your trajectory, mm-hmm. and And we will talk about that. But in terms of what you're talking about right now, yeah, there's, I think it's a lot of it is self-care stuff and pressure yeah. and self-imposed pressure. And, yeah. you know, I've been reading a lot about... Our brains in recent years, and we have a negative bias. Like I don't know what it is about humans, but we—it's the thing where if you got Nathan like ten reviews of your record, and nine of them were super positive, but one of them wasn't, you would dwell on the—the one that wasn't the most probably. Well,
2: okay. See, I think it's dangerous to start talking about what humans do, or you know the ten. You know when people say, "Oh, that's just human nature," like no, it's not. It's the cultural bias there have been cultures before us that didn't have that 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 weren't obsessed with that 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 didn't that looked at that in a completely different way so it's not just humans it's not all humans there's a cultural aspect too and you know that's rooted in western culture which is rooted in capitalism which is rooted in this idea that you know things are there for us to own and capitalize on
1: well, I'm not, I'm not, sh- I'm not, sure. Yeah, sorry, I'm not sure, I wasn't trying to insinuate that our brains are just, we're born with our brains that way, I think what you're saying is accurate, but that's uh, generations of cultural yes. issues, and, and capitalism has been around a long time, so it goes back For to sure. what you're saying about the linear path, Yeah, because I think that's, when you're raised in Western cultures, that's, literally like how i was raised you know my parents said you'll do yeah everybody yeah. was yeah it's so ingrained within us
2: all right so the, so it's really hard to see for one yeah. and then when you do see it you do realize oh hey that is that's maybe not the best way to go about it all of a sudden you encounter this giant wall if you try to push back against it because it's like a wave that you just can't you're just a tiny little crumb trying to push back this giant wave it's not going to happen yeah. So you have to find a way to navigate your way through that with, with as little conflict as you yeah. can. And it is really difficult.
1: Well, so to get back to this record and you know, we we our springboard was the first song, Apocalypse Marshmallow, and I kind of alluded to some of the psychological aspects that I was hearing. I think some pretty heavy <laughs> heavy imagery, but then also like delivered in kind of a what are you gonna do? kind of uh mindset like this is just like you could either dwell on this or sort of have some fun with the despair if you will and i think that's what a lot of comedy mm-hmm. and and art does it's like fending off despair by kind of capturing it but also like what are you going to do like making light of it on, not making light of it but like managing it in a sense sure sort of compartmentalizing it but also like dealing with it but also like like i say like what are you going to do so that's one song um when you think about the lyrical themes on this record do you have like an overarching impression of them maybe where they came from when they came from i started off saying i don't know when you wrote this record in relation mm-hmm. to this time we've been discussing can you kind of speak to yeah i, I guess sorry chronologically let's talk about the when yeah. you know and yeah. maybe what in, the when and sort of what inspired this batch of songs. Can sure. you speak to those two things?
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's such a weird... It is. It has been a really weird process because all of the songs were written way before the pandemic. So some of them were written like 10 years ago. Some of them were written seven or eight years ago. And a lot of them I started recording like five years ago. And um, the, I finished it all during the pandemic. And as I was working through the album and, and finishing up the lyrics and things like that, I was just like, I can't believe I wrote these songs so long ago because they fit so well right now. It was it was just kind of a weird experience that I've before described as like my past self was writing this kind of like letter to my future self in a weird way. And, you know, I specifically took my time with this album because the last few albums I'd made with Minotaurs were, were a bit of a rush um, on purpose. It was a bit of an experiment. But with this one, I was like, "No, I'm just gonna like let it breathe and and you know give it as much time as it needs to get it right where I want it to be." Yeah. And it's weird that I kind of finished it at at, at this moment because <laughs> a lot of the words I'm listening to, I'm like, Whoa, "I can't believe I wrote this seven years ago." It, like, feels like I wrote them right now. It, it was such a weird experience.
1: You are a student of history in a literal sense, right? You studied history mm-hmm. in school. Yeah. Do you think that that knowledge or or that background uh, even subconsciously even gives you a broader view of time because what we have discovered <laughs> sadly is that history really does repeat itself so when I was just having a conversation with the uh, comedy historian Cliff Nesteroff and he mm. pointed out that like when the Trump stuff was happening in the states and everyone was like rise of fascism rise of fascism He's like, well, I'm a history major. I'm familiar with fascism. Eight times out of ten, fascism crumbles. So I'm not as worried about this as maybe sometimes it doesn't, obviously. Sometimes it does sustain itself. But as a student of history, he, he tends to look at whatever's going on, pandemic, whatever, from the framework of history. Well, okay, this has happened before in some way. The material conditions, the general conditions might be different, but what do we learn from how that ended up. So I guess what I'm getting at in a roundabout way is you wrote these songs maybe 10 years ago. They still resonate today. If you're a history-minded person, that to me makes sense. You might be like, you seem prescient, but you're you're basically anticipating what's coming based on history. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot kind of going on with what you just said there. One of the
2: things is the outcome of the pandemic, let's say. It's not a new thing. Like, you could you could easily argue that the product of this pandemic or the negative products of this pandemic are only exaggerated versions of what was already happening, right? There was already poverty
1: before, extreme poverty. Income yeah. inequality, to be precise, yeah. Thank you, yes. yes. So yeah.
2: the pandemic's just really, like, exaggerated that or at least uh, made that more visible, let's say. So in that sense you know the i guess i guess what you're saying is that you know the the stuff that i was tuning into when i wrote these songs maybe is a little more relevant now but it was still relevant then and in terms of like the broader scope of time to me what was sort of drilled into my head during my schooling in history was this idea of context so when you're trying to understand something in the past you're not just understanding what happened you're also trying to understand what happened around it. What was going on in other places? What was the context of the time? And you've yeah, got yeah. to treat that in the context of when it happened. You can't just pick it out of time. You know what I mean? And then I like the sense that uh, history doesn't repeat
1: itself, but it rhymes. So, um, Well, but, but what we're seeing a lot of is that people are either deliberately ahistorical— Uh, or they don't want to learn from history. For example, like let's just say you lived in a country, and every time you voted for a representative of a certain party, by the end of their term, the economy is in ruins. People are worse off than they were before that party came into power. Then you vote in a different party. They're not great either in a lot of ways, but at at least by the end of their terms, the economy is in relative terms, you know, not for everyone. There's going to be income inequality for some reason. We can't get a handle on that. We don't have the compassion, I think, as a whole to, to deal with that. But at the end of their that other party's term, things are better somehow, on, a, on a, in a general sense, the way the stats go. But yet, the next time there's an election, <laughs> the populace decides, you know what? We're going to vote for the ruinous party again, just for the sake of change. That, to me, is... Or, or you know, why did fascism rise? Well, they neutralized and and maligned the media, in particular. And the media didn't do enough to push back against it. Hmm. Is this happening again? Like, why aren't we learning from... This is all in history books. So, like, that's where I'm at with it a little bit. I'm not saying you did this with your, your stuff, with your songs. But we, as uh, you, in particular, as a sensitive artist type, are probably more dialed in to feelings and thoughts that are percolating subversively and then you write about them and then you look like some prescient wizard years mm-hmm. later because the general populace has finally dialed into what was previously uh-huh. a sort of subversive context if you will or frame of mind so sorry am i am i applying too much Import to you <laughs> as some sort of soothsaying songwriter troubadour. I do think that's true, though. Like, as do
2: you agree? Yeah, that? I think. Yeah, I think artists in a certain to a certain degree are a bit of a weather vane, yeah, or a bellwether. You know, that's yeah. kind of your kind of kind of your job as an artist is to kind of you know take in what's happening in a in, a, in an emotional way and try to yeah. respond to it somehow or try to. Um, highlight it or emphasize it or communicate that to your fellow humans and stuff
1: well isn't that why we, I mean it doesn't isn't that way we gravitate towards artists they help us make sense of things that we either oh yeah don't understand I mean, totally. or don't know about like if you're watching like a slasher movie you don't want mm-hmm. to relate to the person but you like in, in the sense oh ideally you're not going to be like yeah yeah that's a that could be a thing I do but you want to be able to relate to that extreme and so an artist and to the emotion yes
2: like yeah. to me the whole idea of a horror movie is, is to get scared and to feel the, the fear right in a safe way. And I guess you could apply that to to, uh, the exhilaration that you feel from certain musics or the sadness that you feel. It's sort of cathartic in a lot of ways, it's sort of practice, Mm -hmm. you know, you practice, you're working through emotions in a, in a safe, in a safe sense. And it is, it isn't always on, on the part of the artist, something conscious either, and, in fact, when it is conscious, it's usually worse right? <laughs> or lamer. It's too blunt. Yeah, like, you know, we, we, want, we want to be mystified. You know, we want to be, to a certain degree, confused a bit. <laughs> I think that, what, for me anyway, that's what I love. The, the art that I love confuses me a bit, you know. And I'm like, what's going on there? I really got to l- listen to that and figure out what's going on. That's just how I interpret it. But I think, you know... I've always said there's two kinds of music listeners, the people who want to be comforted and the people who want to be confused. And the people who want to be comforted from music, they just listen to the same thing, Shania Twain or whatever it is, again and again. It could even be interesting music, but they listen, that's what they like, boom, they're done. They don't need to hear anything else. They can just ride off into the sunset with that Neil Young record, they're done. And then there's other people who always want something new. They want to be confused. They want to be... Uh, you know, whatever other... Word what
1: about the use. people, though? And I don't mean to uh, disparage anyone. You mentioned Neil Young. What about... There's been waves of this in recent years because everything is polarized and everything becomes... Nothing is even political anymore. It gets politicized, I would say, on some level. Mm-hmm. But what about mm-hmm. the people who have been lifelong Neil Young, Bruce Springsteen, Rage Against the Machine fans, who now you hear these stories of them only now recognizing that, you know, these are all left-leaning artists, and they had no idea this whole time. You know, it (laughs) happens every... There's cycles. Since Born in the USA, the song was released. Every 10 years, you hear, like, you read articles or see stories about someone somewhere discovering they can't use the song as a political anthem because it's not what they think. And so where I'm coming from with that is, like, you mentioned, and I agree with you, like, we like nuance in our art. But it seems that we're in an age where we are dealing with really blunt force informational instruments, and they're not even working. Like, hey, everyone, here's some facts. I reject your facts. So as a parent, as a person in the world, and you as a critical thinker, how do you deal with that? Like raising people (laughs) that you hope will do good in the world in this very fractured landscape? Well, I don't know. I, I actually
2: don't know. I do know that we probably need to be raising rebels. I think that we need to be telling children that we sh- they shouldn't believe everything yeah. they hear. I, you know, the, there should be courses in high school about media literacy. There should be, you know, we need to tell children that, you know, just because someone says it doesn't mean it's true. And you have the power to learn more, and you should learn more. You shouldn't take anything anyone says yeah. for granted, including yeah. your parents. And my, you know, I think my parents did a pretty good job of that. The critical thinking element is is something that we Oh, wait, wait a
1: minute. S- wait a minute. Wait a minute though. This is an this is an Whoa. interesting perspective to have because I think I know where you're coming from. However, couldn't the argument be made that your conspiracy theorists, your anti-vaxxers, that's exactly what they're doing. They're not taking everything they um, read to heart. They're no, questioning no, no, they're no, questioning no. everything they hear and read. <laughs> no. And they're like, well, I, you know, I was raised to not believe everything well, I heard and
2: read. That's the no. That's the key, though. They're not questioning everything they're reading, right? They are questioning some things, and not questioning mm-hmm. other things. So, you know, they they come across the this page of misinformation about vaccines, and they're like, oh yeah, that I think that's right. But maybe they don't take it the next... Well, who is this person who wrote it? What are their biases? Where are they coming from? Where are they getting this information? That whole sort of cascade of questions that needs to happen when you're looking at any source of information, that's the critical part. When I look at my sources, that is sort of, you know, especially been trained as a historian, that's, that's what historians do. They don't just you know, come across this newspaper article from 1910 about World War II and go, oh, that's the truth. No, they go, who is the author What's the editorial bias of the paper that it came from? What else has this person written? What's the context that they're writing in? Where in the world were they writing this? All of that informs how I'm going to interpret that information. And that's the critical piece about about how we consume information today.
1: But you're talking about media literacy. I'm reading a book called Dispatches from the Front. Um, I'm halfway through it. I have had to put it down. But it talks about a very prominent wartime Canadian journalist. And he wrote for the Toronto Star... And it's striking, the passages about how the Globe and Mail, the other Toronto newspapers, were very pro-Hitler, yeah, pro-Nazis, yeah, because they didn't know what we know in hindsight on some level. Um, oh, yeah, the whole
2: idea of appeasement, right?
1: Yeah. yeah. So all I'm saying is you talk about media literacy. There's an information problem. Everyone has a right to question almost everything they read. But those of us who have drawn sort of lines about where we sit on a informational or political spectrum, we are all choosing what we want to believe more so than, you know, a fact is a fact. True.
2: And and I would say, you know, in the end, I'm not sure there is anything (laughs) as an objective truth. I mean, the other thing I learned in history school was that there's no such thing as a true fact, really. Like When you're trying to make an argument, you choose the things that you want to strengthen your argument. That's what you do. But in that act, you're also not choosing a whole bunch of other things that are also true. So you're choosing your facts to support your argument, and when you do that, you leave out a whole bunch of other things. So, you know, even history, a historian is not telling the truth. They're telling an interpretation of things that happened. And they need to account for that and, and kind of explain why and have a methodology. Yeah. Um, so it's not just pulling stuff out of the air, but at the same time, it's not the truth, so to speak. There yeah. could be an alternate truth using also true facts, just with a different uh, interpretation of them or, or a slightly different set of facts. You know, they could be looking at the same event, but have coming to a different conclusion.
1: So there you go that's what we're living through right now. That's exactly what we're living through right now. But it seems, I guess what I'm trying to get at here is, are you saying this always happens or are we just living in a heightened state? I think it's
2: always happened where it's just hyper, it's hyper driven now or something like that. I mean, you know, the other thing is what's the outcome of this? Like it seems that a lot of people are harmed. It feels like more people are harmed by misinformation these days than, than it used to be. And I don't know if that's because of the globalization aspect that we're, you know, the we're, Impacting each other more. Also, I think the internet really lends itself to a really toxic discourse.
1: Well, the internet lends itself to free information sharing, which a lot of us have valued for the last 25 years. But now, what we've come, we've created this monster where almost anyone, unless they're banned, has a platform to share whatever they want. Mm -hmm. And if they have enough of a following uh, and they're, they're, thing is shared it becomes a trending topic and then it becomes a topic of conversation that we have to deal with whether it's rooted in fact or not yeah. the outlandishness the sensationalism yeah. is rewarded yeah. and so that's where i'm at with it yeah. and i don't know what to do except a lot of people are just saying turn off the news which is dangerous it is a dangerous sentiment to me too yeah. because i wanted to stay in i want to stay informed but being informed gives me Uh, stresses me out and so you know in this pandemic i used to be pretty up on what was going on and then i was like there's too much conflicting information like i was supposed to get the astrazeneca vaccine and i canceled it the day of or i actually i couldn't cancel it i bailed and then rebooked it because the day i was supposed to get it there was like this information that the whole site where they made it was contaminated meaning it wouldn't have any efficacy if you will right so I'm like this is so stupid this whole thing and this was after the blood clot thing. Anyway, my point is like it's very hard to make a decision. I just so we're clear, I eventually got the AstraZeneca <laughs> vaccine as we're speaking, I am going to switch to one of the mRNA ones, but my my thing is like that's the kind of anguish we have yeah. with information yeah. and it's not but I wanted I would like to know that information. I'd like to be informed about what I'm putting into my body. Yeah, I mean there uh, is and,
2: good information. There is trustworthy information out there. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Well, speaking of trustworthy
1: information, <laughs> you said that uh, you know, you were surprised by how much of the songs uh, how much was relevant about the songs you wrote 10 years ago. Can you dial in on that a little bit? What kinds of things that resonate now with you and maybe with us come to mind when you think about uh topics or ideas in your songs that You're like, wow, I can't believe I wrote this. It's so relevant now. Can you think of anything in particular? Well, the
2: song Restless, for example, that really kind of nails it to me. Like, you know, who hasn't felt restless during this time of lockdowns and social isolation? And the idea that, you know, the chorus of that song, On the Edge of Everything, here we are, we have everything at our fingertips, but we're restless, you know? We can have any, you know. There's so much promise and so so much opportunity for for satisfying our needs or urges, right? But yet we're still unsatisfied.
1: I, you know, it's funny you homed in on that one, because if I were to describe you in one word, <laughs> I would probably use the word restless. Yeah. Because for for, the, for those of us who've been following your trajectory, uh, and that would be, I think, me. Uh I <laughs> there's probably been others. <laughs> no, like we came up in Guelph. You were you were here before I you were there rather before I was there. And you were known as a drummer, mm-hmm. uh, a really hot shit drummer with different bands and then you emerged at the kind of turn of the century as your own sort of folk singing type guy. And then you continued to play drums with people and continue to tend to full band and solo versions of your own sort of, for lack of a better term, like pop songs, like Mm -hmm. verse, chorus, verse sort of songs. And then you had some sort of feeling that, you know, I want to actually get people dancing uh, as much as I want to tug at their heartstrings. So you you started to explore Afrobeat type music uh, or were very influenced by that and wanted to explore that influence with your band Minotaurs. Mm-hmm. Have released oodles of albums as minotaurs, which is like a it can be a ten piece band yep. to do Afrobeat style music justice, you need to do that. Oh, and within that you've lived for various reasons in various cities. You were in Guelph, short stint out west, did school in northern Ontario, these sorts of things. So you're kinda always moving around, I think, even career vocationally outside of music. You've done different things. So to me, in my mind, is restless and I don't even know that it's a negative term you seem like a restless fellow is that yeah, would you yeah that's accurate okay so does that say something about you in terms of why we're back to this version of Nathan Lore? which I think is still quite different than the folk like it's a, it's a it's a song based if you will like yeah not to say Minotaurs wasn't song based there were also hooks and yep. choruses and all that stuff but musically this is like a rock yeah Total total rock version of you on yeah. one hand. So, And I don't know if the restlessness speaks to that, but I guess what I'm asking, and this is a long way of asking, what has brought us to this sound from you at this point in your life? Why are we back to more of a rock sound?
2: I think with the, the Minotaur's experience really showed me what else could happen with a song. It's almost like you need to go way too far in one direction to have a better understanding of where you were at before, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. And you know, the experiment with Minotaurs was always to take a song. At the core of it, I always saw it as like a folk song and explode that and allow for space to, I don't know, experiment or explore, or improvise or whatever. And um, it sort of meld those two worlds together and then you know in all honesty organizing an eight or nine piece band is totally exhausting <laughs> and i just came to the point i was like oh man i think i need a break from this and um i had all these songs on deck already and they just kind of lent themselves i'd felt the power of an eight piece band i'd felt the power of rocking out hard and i you know i was like oh maybe i could just like Kind of take from what I had started out as, and marry it with this more robust kind of feel and and vibe, and and see what happens there.
1: Well, I mean, it's very, it's still a very dynamic record, and there's some really beautiful songs like Passing Train shows mm. off a whole other sort of mode for you. But yeah, I, I just pick up on even Passing Train like traveling, moving. Like, I mean, I don't know mm. that that's, and I know you're you're potentially conjuring characters. These aren't all you. Uh, in your songwriting, but Mm -hmm. Restless, Wandering Eyes, like they just, I I sometimes wonder if you're at peace with yourself. Uh, Oh, definitely not. You're not at peace with yourself in (laughs) any way at all. (laughs) <laughs> no no i'm just kidding
2: i mean no i yes and no i mean some parts of myself i mean i guess you could say i'm at peace with the part of myself that recognizes that i'm not fully at peace if that makes no,
1: sense. no you're you are very self-aware about it i mean you and i have had our jokes about your temperament when i had a, a radio show you would occasionally appear on a segment we decided to call Uncle Nady's Grump Shack, which I think I think our friend Shahan actually came up with that uh, over Google Chat as he was listening to us. But no, and so like yeah, you are you're someone you are very you're a raw nerve in some ways. You're emotional, and we've also played hockey together. I know you're an intense guy, and I think that the fact that I don't get intense about stuff like that used to drive you nuts because I'd be like, no, it's am I not I'm like second on the team for points in this tournament and you're like yelling at me I'm like what am I supposed to I can't even skate it's crazy that I can just like set people up score a couple goals here and there like and you were mad at me and I don't know what it was about and I'm not gonna broach it here but uh I do think like yeah you you're intense and do do I you know, get that intensity out in these songs like do you feel like you're exercising any of it
2: yeah, I guess to a certain extent. And you know, I guess with any kind of other personality attribute, you can use it as a like okay, so when I'm talking to my kids and I'm talking about their personality attributes, I try to frame it as a as a, as a superpower, like a strength. Yeah. So if my daughter's really determined to have ice cream, I say, "Wow, you're really you know, that's a really awesome power that you have that you are so determined." <laughs> um, and I guess in my case, yeah, I don't know where this intensity comes from. I prefer to look at it as like this fire that kind of, like I am a fire sign. I kind of sort of quasi-believe in some of that stuff, this sort of astrological stuff. But there's a fire burning in me, and it and it kind of comes out in lots of negative ways, but it comes out in a lot of really positive ways too. And obviously my my task is to try to mitigate the negative ways. Yeah and have more of the positive ways but, but in the end it's that fire's not going anywhere I'm, I gotta contend with it one way or another and definitely music is one of the ways and uh, it's also why I was drawn to drums in the first place you know when I first encountered drums I was like oh my gosh that just spoke right to my you know lizard brain you mean i just have to hit that thing and it makes a noise like all right i'm in let's do this
1: what about because uh, i you know i alluded to the fact that i have kind of come to terms with the fact that i do have some some control issues and i'm trying to deal with them drummer is an interesting position for someone with our personality type if i may lump us together in terms of intensity yeah. i mean here's the thing i'll also say i alluded to the fact that you have that you're restless or whatever, and you've done all these different types of things throughout the last 20, 25 years. But to a less, well, not to a lesser extent, I don't want to sell myself short. I also do the same thing many, many mm-hmm. different things. Like, we've like many different styles of sort of similar things, if you will mm-hmm. genres of music or whatever. Like, uh, in my case, media platforms. I do as much as I can. And so I st- sometimes think that people like you and me are trying to prove something to somebody whether it's ourselves, mm. whether it's our parents. I You know, if I reflect upon my podcast, I often end up... I've done it already once here. I often end up talking about my parents and my upbringing. So something mm. about that uh, is, needs to be dealt with, and I've tried to with various in various ways, and I'm better with it. But this notion of trying to prove something to someone... Are you kind of aware of that? Do you feel like you're trying to do that a little bit? Is it yourself? Is no. it some? No. I mean, okay. I
2: guess to a small degree, but no. To me, it's about exploring. To me, what what maybe is fueling the restlessness is I just want to experience it all. You know, when I when I became a musician, I went on tour. It was so exhilarating because I got to go to all these different cities and see all these different things, have all these different like emotional experiences and um, life experiences. And, and to me, that's what it's all about. Like, that's what life is about, is about, you know, I don't want to just go find the one thing that I like to do and ride off into the sunset in that. I want to explore and experience all kinds of different things, you know? And that's, you know, when I, my taste in music, like, I just want to hear it all. Like, I want to listen to everything.
1: Well, know? what about where I was starting that last spiel off, the notion of the drummer being really central And in a sense, really, you know, whether they had any part in the composition of a song, once you're performing the song, often the drummer can tonally, you know, control what's going on. If you play, if you're locked in, great. If you're too fast, you're too slow, the character of the creation is... Destroyed. Often the drummer is the one counting things in. Like if I actually (laughs) step back and think, like, why did I want to become... Well, I know I I had to... You know, it's funny. I had to do a thing for my daughter's class today, like a career day. Yeah. So I actually talked about how I had to play drums or I got to start... I started playing drums out of necessity because everyone in my friend group played some sort of guitar, bass or whatever. So we needed a drummer. So some friends and I pooled some money and we bought the cheapest drum kit and like the penny saver and I we set it up everyone took a shot at it I could keep a beat so I right. did it kind of out of I was supporting everyone I feel like yeah. or whatever yeah, and yeah. then I that's how so it's yeah that's it there's something about drumming that is both you're in charge of the song in a way I, I don't want to put too fine a point on that it's in service it's but it's in service it's in service to others so it's a support yeah, role yeah. Which goes back to my Gretzky uh, idolship, maybe. Like, I like Gretzky. <laughs> he was the king of assists. He was anticipating where the puck was uh-huh. going, a lot like the drummer. Most yeah. like the drummer. So, uh, yeah, so there's that. It's not just, like, controlling martyr complex. It's I am in a, a, a service role. on For some, sure. Yeah.
2: And to me, that's part of what we were talking about before, like when I was talking about this fire that I have, and sometimes it comes out negatively and sometimes it comes out positively, one way I can use that fire for good is to provide the energy and structure for someone else's song. yeah, that's fair. and th- and that's you know that's really one of my favorite things about playing drums is being able to take someone else's song and 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 help bring it to life yeah um and and to infuse it with energy.
1: I, I fully agree. Uh, I fully agree with that. Not to make us sound like the most selfless people in the world, but I do think that is a role that the drummer in any band does play. Um, yeah. And, of course, egos can run amok. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> but, no, I agree. I totally, uh, totally agree. Well, as I ponder, uh, we've talked about the present and the past. The future is weird and uncertain. You were putting out a record during a pandemic where, here in Canada anyway touring playing shows is still questionable did you see the thing today as we're speaking that you know Bruce Springsteen who you and I both enjoy uh, he's doing a Broadway run and they've they've declared that Canadians who have received the AstraZeneca vaccine specifically cannot attend What they've specifically said that only FDA approved vaccines are like for for someone outside of the country to travel Because they don't, they I don't know. They gave everyone, including me. I had the AstraZeneca. (laughs) I'm switching to the other one. But um, it's crazy. Anyway, sorry. That's a weird sign. How about that Foo Fighters show that you're only allowed to come if you've been vaccinated? I mean, I'm for that. I'm not for that.
2: I'm not for that at all. Because because there's a whole socioeconomic component of that that's completely ignored.
1: Right. Well, sure, but sure. No, no, no. no, no. You
2: assume when you say that you're assuming that everyone's had equal access to getting the vaccine,
1: but Nathan, that is not the case. Nathan, you, are you? You're also assuming that everyone has equal access to be able to afford a Foo Fighters ticket.
2: Well, sure, that's a whole. It other is conversation.
1: totally well. No, it's the same conversation. Like basically, <laughs> I guarantee you, I haven't looked. There's probably not a ticket for a Foo Fighters show that's less than seventy-five to hundred bucks. Oh yeah, I'm sure. So if you're already, that's already. Are you crazy? Like, uh, the whole concert industry does not cater... Nothing caters to people who have no money. Nothing. Oh, I know. I just so, think it's like, man, that's...
2: It's... I don't know. I mean, I, I fucking food writers suck anyway, so it doesn't even matter. I'm
1: just saying... <laughs> all I'm saying is yes. I, I'm not saying I disagree with you. I'm just saying yeah. the whole system is... Yeah, like, you're right. How you're much right. is a Leafs ticket? You know how many, like, blue-collar people Oh, I know. love the Toronto Maple Leafs? And meanwhile, I don't even know. I'm guessing a base a base worst ticket in the house is what a hundred bucks, a hundred and fifty bucks, At least, yeah, yeah. And they start the, the games are at seven o'clock on a weekday, probably yeah. when people have to work the next day. Like nothing is catering to the working class. No, you're in, right, in the course. entertainment complex. They don't give a fuck. No, so I, I, and I, you know, it's a it's a thing that I deal with going to these things. Yeah. I never feel good about it, and even like yeah, and 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 as someone who you know. At least middle class. My wife and I both work. When I see... You know, at the Raptors games, I've been lucky to sit pretty close when Raptors games tickets were cheaper. But generally, I can't... I can't... Like, the best seat in the house is like $1,000 probably. Again, I don't... Yeah, yeah. or more. Well, probably a lot more, frankly. So, like, it's not... Anyway, there's a whole other tangent, but I'm just saying. Yes. My point is this. I hear you. My question was... What do you do in this circumstance as a musician with a new record? Are you going to participate in some sort of streaming stuff, or are you trying to tentatively plan for shows, like real-life shows?
2: Yeah, well, before the pandemic happened, I was gearing up to do solo shows. I had like four solo shows booked, and four minotaur shows booked. They all had to be canceled. And um, while I feel hopeful, I'm not quite ready to jump back into it full hog. I am starting to plan some like backyard concerts hmm. for when we, when Ontario moves into whatever stage three or whatever, when we can have like more yep 25 or more people or whatever. Yep. Um, little things like that. Um, you know, for now <laughs> just kind of getting through a day with the family, with the kids at home all the time and, and working and everything else. You know, it's we're we're just at we're well over max capacity and have been for quite some time. Mentally, so. physically,
1: yeah. It's yeah. yeah. My so my kids the, have been the home the, the whole time, of, by the way. My kids yeah, have been, I know. the entire time.
2: Yeah. It's nuts. That is nuts. So, you know, the the prospect of booking tours and stuff is just not I'm just not there yet, but um you know, it is what it is. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see.
1: Well, if people want to learn more about uh, apocalypse marshmallow, uh where would you like to sort of send them?
2: uh
1: is about the best place
2: okay cool and there's videos and stuff there are videos if you go to Maxilicious records on youtube you will find the two the two videos what's Maxilicious
1: records oh i just had to start them just because i'm kind of my own label oh it's your your label Maxilicious. yeah well yeah what is with you and then what the hell were you thinking (laughs) why is it called Maxilicious?
2: I don't know. It just had a nice ring to it. Huh. It sounds... I just... It was, it was a funny word. I liked it. It
1: sounds like a candy bar you'd get at a gas station.
2: Yeah. It's like Max and it's delicious and it's like, I don't know. Okay. Who's Max? Uh, not nah, nobody's Max. Okay. I, nobody's well, Max. There's... I have a friend named Max. I don't know. But it's not about him.
1: It's not about him. Okay. Max Delicious Records on on YouTube. Um, yeah. And then we'll keep an eye out. Oh, what about socials? Are you on all the socials? Do you want people to follow you on yeah, any of those things?
2: I'm on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Nathan Is it your Lohr. own name? Yeah, you should be able to find me. Nathan Lohr. Yep.
1: Okay. Now, if we can go out on a song from this new album, I wonder if you can choose one and maybe uh, tell us why you chose it.
2: Uh, let's go out on Passing Train this was a song that i've had for quite some time and it started out as a sort of folky thing which morphed into a more like a i tried like a punk rock version uh, but none of it really settled and then i got my friend thomas hammerton to produce it and i gave him the chords and the lyrics and the kind of rough ideas i had and he basically did everything else
1: tom uh is a is a goddamn genius. And Thomas
2: Hammerton is, you know, I think I can say this without any hint of exaggeration. Maybe the best musician I know. Um, he's got the technical proficiency. He's got the taste, the creativity, and he's also just a fabulous dude.
1: Very and, unassuming um, as well. Yeah. yeah I know so he's... you don't, you know, you're in the presence. I've played with Tom in a band of sorts <laughs> and, uh, what I liked about him is like, I knew he's a, I know he's a heavy dude, but he doesn't, doesn't, uh, put that across in any way. And no. he's so fun to play with because he's just quietly supportive and, and instructive. And, uh, yeah. so, yeah. Um, no,
2: he's, he's a monster and yeah. So he, he basically took the reins on that song and turned it into what it is. And it's, it's beautiful.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, I love this song as well. It, um, I don't know if it. Never mind. I was going to say it kind of reminded me of something or someone, but you know who it reminds me of is that Nathan Lore. So let's hear it. This is Passing Train <laughs> from Apocalypse Marshmallow. Uh, Nathan, uh, I love you. I love talking to you. Thank you for this time, and I wish you the best of luck with everything in the future.
2: Thanks, Visha. Love you too.
1: Say hi to your fam for me. Oh yeah, say us. hi to people uh, from me as well. That was rude. Yeah, yeah. I ended rudely. I'm sorry. <laughs> I forgive you. Thank mm-hmm. you. Yeah, it's very nice to have my old friend Nathan Lohr back on this show. He's back. He returned to the show. It's been some years since he was last on the show. I don't even remember when. It was a long time ago. I'm not going to look it up now. I'm doing the outro. But I just wanted to say thanks again to my friend Nathan Lohr for appearing on this, the 622nd episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network and is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you can't find an episode that you've heard about, you're looking for it, you don't know where it is, you lost it, you've looked under the bed, you looked in the attic, you looked in the kitchen, it's not there. Or if you want to learn more about me and sign up for my monthly newsletter, please visit my website, vishkana.com. All that you seek pertaining to me and the show should be there. You can like Creative Control on Facebook or follow the show on Twitter at vishcreative or follow me directly on Twitter and on Instagram at vishkana also please visit patreon.com slash creative control to make a flexible monthly donation six dollars or more grants you access to exclusive content and if you're interested in receiving a creative control t-shirt please message me on patreon and i'll get you one while supplies last i want to thank uh lots of people i have to thank people for their in-kind support for the show who should who, who should we start with here how about pizza trocadero The Bookshelf and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario for their in-kind support for the show. Thanks to all of you for doing that. I want to thank my friend Jim Guthrie for letting me use some music of his on this show each week and you can learn more about Jim at his site, jimguthrie.org and finally, thank you for listening to this episode with Nathan and for subscribing to this podcast and asking your friends to check it out. Maybe they'll consider following the show themselves if they don't already And just spreading the word about it Tell your friends about the show I think that kind of stuff helps Your friends like you They trust you So if, if they trust you and like you And you tell them you like the show It's all going to work out good for me That's just what I'm I'm very selfish Anyway, thank you very much for listening to the show I will talk to you very soon Bye for now